0: Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week it's time to ask yourself who you really are. Danielle Trussoni's The Ancestor was released to much acclaim last year. Now it's out in paperback, and Danny joins me to talk about its many, many mysteries. It's another one of those books that demands we both tiptoe a very narrow tightrope to avoid giving too much away. It begins with a really simple gothic proposition. American woman inherits decrepit European castle, secrets and revelations ensue. Yet it then goes on some of the wildest narrative departures you can imagine. Suffice to say, and I admit as much to Danny, this is a novel I went into with quite minimal expectations, yet I completed it with shock and absolute admiration. It fundamentally is not the novel you think it's going to be, and it seriously gambles on its premise, but in my opinion, pulls it off with a plum. Some of you may have already read it, and if so, enjoy this additional insight. We talk about Danny's own European roots, how she melds Gothic with a whole other kind of fiction that I can't get into yet. I regale her with one of my favourite ever British legends, as I seem to do now week on week, and eventually we debate the existence of Bigfoot, or Yeti, or Sasquatch, or whatever you want to call the hairy fella. It's one of my favourite recent conversations, and though we recorded it several weeks before the death of Prince Philip, it's also accrued a sort of special historical resonance The novel, after all, being about an old family burdened with history and mystery and scandal with some very monstrous skeletons in the closet. And yeah, I'll say no more about that. So join me in the frozen heights of the Italian Alps. But don't look into the ice too closely. It might reflect back things you don't want to know about yourself. Let's talk scared. (laughs) Well, hi, Danielle, and a very warm welcome to Talking Scared.
1: Hey, Neil, how are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. I mean, I say warm welcome because today is the first time that that my part of the world has seen sun in what feels like forever. So uh, yeah, I'm feeling fairly optimistic. How are things where you are?
1: So I'm in New York, and it's been a long, gloomy COVID winter here where (laughs) we haven't been able to really do much of anything and the sun is out today here too. it's a bit blustery and windy but it's really beautiful and things are starting to feel a little bit like spring
0: yeah things are looking up let's hope it continues and um, it's great to speak to you obviously I speak to authors week on week but as well as being an author of dark fiction yourself you're also the the horror columnist for the New York Times which may be the greatest gig in the world
1: <laughs> I have to say it's pretty fun um, I feel pretty lucky to have that gig, and it keeps me on top of what's going on in the horror world. So um, I'm getting boxes of books sent to me every month, and I get to go through them and and just sort of see what's happening and, and get to read the best of the best that's out there in horror.
0: Yeah, it probably means that you know far more about this subject than me. Certainly, the the current.
1: You know, it's interesting because yeah. It's interesting because I don't think I do. I, um I think I was chosen for you know to write that column precisely because I come from a slightly different background in my writing. So, um although I do get tons of horror novels, it's not like I'm an expert in the genre per se. Like I think you mentioned before that you have a degree in gothic literature. I don't have a degree in in any um form of of horror. Um, fiction or horror writing or the history of horror. So really, for me, it's just been 100% pure pleasure, getting the books, reacting to them, writing about them. Uh, I don't have the sort of encyclopedic you know, knowledge of horror.
0: That's why I do the show, really, for the fun of it, because for years, studying it at a higher level kind of, you know, stripped away the joy of it, and, and it revealed the mechanics. So it is nice to go back to reading books and then talking to the authors. From a purely creative perspective, so I, I do get that. Now that you said that, that I mentioned my degree, my friends who listen to this show will now ridicule me mercilessly because they already <laughs> say that I mention my degree at any given opportunity. So, so that is going to that is going to come back to haunt. <laughs> oh,
1: sorry, you can edit that out if you want.
0: <laughs> no, it's fine. My, my my wife regales everyone with the tale that on on our second date, she came back to my house to to find my my PhD thesis, hardbound, laid out on the coffee table. Now, it was there because I was working on it, but she, she maintains it was done as a kind of power move.
1: Oh, of course. Very seductive. Gothic literature is always the thing.
0: It's seems to work, but more importantly, your work. So your best-selling novel, The Ancestor, is now out in paperback from William Morrow. A lot of my listeners may already have read it, but some may have not. As I've said to you previously this book confounded my expectations more than any I can really think of and I think for that reason I'll, I'll ask you to introduce the plot and what we need to know because it's just too easy to stray into spoiler territory so tell us about the ancestor
1: right so yes it does uh, it's a, it's one of those novels that starts in one place and you end up in a completely different place than you thought you were going to go um, some readers love that, right? The twists and turns and and being surprised. Um, and I do as a reader. So the, the novels, it's called The Ancestor. It's a contemporary novel set um, in the beginning in upstate New York with a young woman who takes a DNA test, just one of those box gen- ancestry genetic tests that you could take nowadays. And she discovers that she has a family she didn't realize that she had. And they're in the Italian Alps um through various machinations she ends up going to the Italian Alps um she discovers that she's the last living heir um to this family's fortune there's a castle um you know dilapidated spooky castle um she has very strange stories about her ancestors um and when she's there it's revealed that her family is not at all what she thought it was and that's the twist <laughs> and the surprise of the book. Um, so yeah, it's it's basically characterized as as a sort of chilling gothic suspense novel. But there are elements in it of other sort of obsessions that I have. You know, there's a strain of um, cryptozoology in it. There's strains of um, sort of references to 19th century um, horror fiction or you know literary gothic fiction. And sort of all the the elements that I love about horror and about fiction in general, actually, I don't like to cordon off horror as just its own little thing that doesn't bleed into other genres, because it really does. Um, All of the elements of, of literature that I love sort of ended up in that book.
0: Right. So to pick up from what you just said, we just had a little edit point there. where We tried to cut out some some background noise from Danielle's apartment. She lives in a creepy old house and there is a window creaking in the wind. So if you hear a strange creaky noise in the background, bear with us. It's fitting for the subject matter at hand. Everything you just said there is altogether the reason I really enjoyed this book. Anyone who knows me and a lot of people who know me through this show by now will know that I have certain obsessions. Traditional gothic fiction. I'm a massive cryptozoology nerd, like obsessively so. I interviewed Colin Dickey last year, who wrote his book all about mysteries and monsters and stuff like that. Um, I love that stuff.
1: Yeah, I know Colin. He's a friend of mine. So <laughs> I think Amazing. Uh, we all have the same sort of circuit, right? We all kind of love the same things. His book, his book of haunted houses is also um, something that I loved.
0: Yeah, they're brilliant. I loved his work and I loved the the cryptozoology mythic element of, of this novel. Uh, to address one thing you just said. Normally I do have conversations with authors about genre and about, you know, what they consider the novel to be and all that. I've read dozens of interviews with you about the ancestor, because I I try and do my due diligence to ask you questions you may not have been asked before, and I just see everyone asking you to justify this being a horror novel. I'm not gonna do that, basically. I think, (laughs) you know, it's got spooky castles, it's got hideous family secrets, it's got stolen children, it's got monsters. You're on a horror fiction podcast, so we'll just assume that the shoe fits. Is that, is that okay with Perfect. you? Perfect, yes. Right. A more interesting question then, I think. After the, the huge success of Angelology and Angelopolis, which are two novels which really stretch the Northern English glottal stop, <laughs> after the success of them, what inspired you to write a scientific gothic monster novel set in the italian alps because it is it is quite the departure
1: well on the surface it looks like a departure i think but angelology is very similar in a lot of ways In that the premise of that novel is that um it takes biblical lore and posits that it is actually happening so there's this group of angels called nephilim that are sort of evil angels and um the the hero of angelology finds herself discovering over the course of the novel that her family has been involved with these creatures, right? And there's this huge mythology around them um, stemming back thousands of years. Um, And they actually are still living in the contemporary world, and they're hidden, and they have power over us that we don't know about. And so that interest in the other and the mythological and, you know, it's just a sort of normal person falling into um, a relationship with these mythological creatures or these scary um, beings that are both at the, you know, sort of one in the same time. They're They're, they're very interesting and like, I want to say seductive in the way that they're, you know, the angels in the book, they're evil, but they're beautiful, right? You know, that sort of relationship of, the grotesque and the beautiful and the frightening and the the seductive is really um, the same themes that end up playing out in the ancestor. So while on the surface it seems very different, um, and it's true, I would say that the ancestor is a quieter novel in that it is one you know one person's journey to one place and there's one sort of final goal or confrontation or climax, whereas Angelology spans thousands of years and has multiple points of view and you know is written in a very different way. I do think that they're rather similar. Um, it took me a while to go from Angelology and Angelopolis, those two books, to this one. I wrote a, a book of nonfiction in between, um, but I wanted to do something a little more in the Gothic tradition. You know, like all of my books, people have a hard time categorizing it. Um, Angelology, I would say, has gothic elements too. It begins in a nineteenth-century convent on the bank of the Hudson River, upstate New York, and it's very biblical and dark. And there's nuns and monks, and you know, all of the things you find in. Gothic literature, but people had a really hard time categorizing it. Some people called it a thriller, some people called it, um, you know, uh, literary fiction. (laughs) Like, no one called it horror. Um, And with The Ancestor, I really did want to do something that fell more in the horror genre. Um, even though, as you mentioned earlier, people do have a hard time classifying it, I guess that that's just my signature, right? I take a bunch of genres and <laughs> kind of, you know, mix them up, and you get Danielle Trussoni's work at the end.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's fine, isn't it? I mean, these genres are intersecting more and more as as years go by. Gothic comes to the fore in this one very much. It's it's weird actually. Since I've since the turn of the year. And this is in, it's an interesting conversation to have with you with your your knowledge of what's happening in in the in the current and the current trends of of the genre since the turn of the year I've interviewed far far more female authors than male authors. It almost seems like there is a bit of a gender shift with the times of the year and the majority of authors I've spoke since this January have been women authors writing in a gothic vein whereas male authors. Are writing in a a horror vein, and it's almost a return to that that 18th century vibe of the male and female Gothic. I, have you noticed any any trends with that?
1: Yeah, I think that is a trend. I mean, um, there was you know a couple of very successful Gothic novels recently, and I think in publishing that's always something that happens is that publishers will start. Um, opening up to something called Gothic, you know, whereas maybe five years ago, they they were having a harder time doing that. But frankly, you know, women writing Gothic fiction has always been around, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the history of Gothic. Um, you know, in the nineteenth century, especially with the Brontes and Mary Shelley, and that sort of thread that moves through gothic literature and then, in the fifties in the United States, and I'm sure in England too, there was tons of of uh women writing gothic romances, right, it's particularly gothic romance and some women gothic writers bristle about the romance element, but I have to say that even in horror, a lot of Those authors do use elements of romance with gothic. um, And it it seems to hit a nerve. People, especially female readers, who, if you start looking, statistically are about 70% of the people who buy books, love gothic romance. And so it's not a surprise to me that you've had a lot of female gothic authors on your show. I think it's going to be a trend that continues, actually.
0: Yeah, it, it feels like it's almost slipped into the same... The same vibe as something like, uh, like, the, like the cinematic calendar where you get these big tentpole novels in the summer you know you get stephen king in august you get chuck wendig's new book is coming out in july uh richard chismar's book um josh Mallon's book is quite in the early summer you know these big tentpole names with their very very overt horror novels and it seems like the ends of the year are reserved for these quirky, slightly more slipstreamy gothic novels that seem to be predominantly written, as I say, by women authors. It's it's just an interesting trend. And I've only been mapping it now for like, you know, the last eight months because of the show. I don't have a a wider frame of reference, but I'm interested to see whether it's a one-off for 2021 or whether that's a trend that's going to continue.
1: Hmm. Well, I I actually, you know, feel very strongly that there's a lot of bias in the horror world. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, resistance, to, you know, from readers and from publishers to label something horror and then have a woman author. You know, all of the tentpole, the big novels that you just mentioned. You mentioned men. Um, mm-hmm. When you think of um, you know when we think of who are the most famous horror novelists, you think men Stephen King, Clive Barker, you know you can just go on and on the the male writers who have been given not just large advances and big publicity campaigns but within you know institutions like the Horror Writers Association and other places they're lauded and celebrated, and it's a big party f- for those guys. Meanwhile, women writers, whether they're writing Gothic or um, other forms of horror, get less attention. And why is that? Is it because the primary audience for horror is male? I don't know. I mean, is that shifting now? Maybe it is. And, you know, one sign, you know, there's a, um, you know, I'm just looking at books that I have stacked here in my office. You know, all those books that you mentioned are here in my office, stacked up, ready to, you know, waiting for me to review them. Hmm. But there's authors like Zoya Stage, um, there is Jennifer McMahon, who has a novel coming this summer. You know, the woman who wrote um, Mexican Gothic. These novelists are encroaching on that sort of male-dominated tentpole summer <laughs> story novels, right? And I hope, you know, I'm cheering for them from the sidelines. I hope that they do it. And I hope that publishing houses start allocating more funding to their publicity camp campaigns and start really supporting them.
0: Me too, because as I say, a lot of stuff I've read since since January has been fascinating stuff. Um, it's been interesting. I've been doing this thing on Twitter over the last few weeks where I've been trying to get people to nominate the best horror book per U.S. state. Almost everyone has nominated male authors, and I think that more than anything has brought home to me the bias you're talking about. That the it's not necessarily that people aren't willing to read women or willing to like you know laud women writers. It's that they just don't have the same profile a lot of the time. As these big marquee names. So yeah, hopefully that will continue to shift.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Um I'm really, you know, in my column, if you read my column, I'm always, you know, I I I do review books that I love, whether they're by a woman or a man, and I try not to let that be a a deciding factor, but I do also at the same time try to make sure that I'm giving every female author's novel who you know, when it comes onto my desk that I give it a lot of attention and consideration.
0: Mm. And as, as I keep saying to everyone who will listen, if anyone can beat Katrina Ward's Last House on Needless Street for me for book of the year, that that will be quite the book. So yeah, let's see what happens.
1: Yeah, I have yet to read that one. I have not. I have it, but I haven't read I it I will
0: yet. be interested in your opinion. It's, I think it's as close to a masterpiece as, we, as we've had since something like Paul Tremblay's Head Full of Ghosts, in terms of pure horror. So yeah. See what you think. But right. We've wandered quite far from your own novel. here, yeah? So let's get back to your stuff. <laughs> um, it's always quite nice, actually, to discuss a book after it's been out in the world for a while, because normally I tie this into to new releases. But now and again, if something's really interesting, the, the, the paperback releases is a good way to go back and, and have a chance to talk about it. And, you know, your book's been out for a year now. It's had many accolades. You have mentioned to me, though, that there is a certain point in this novel that has provoked controversy or split opinion in your readers. So we'll get into some of that territory later on. But how do you feel about the general reaction to The Ancestor? Have you, have you been pleased by it? I have been pleased.
1: Uh, it had a lot of very good reviews. One in People magazine. That was particularly good. It had a you know a full page review in the New York Times book review. Um yeah, I, the reaction has been really strong. Um, so I can't complain. You know, I, I think my the hardest part of this last year is that the book came out in April of 2020, um, right at the point where nobody knew how to yeah. publish a book with COVID. So my tour, my book tour, was canceled, and we did not yet have a method to do, um, you know, Zoom events. Bookstores were closed down, warehouses were closed down, Amazon was delivering essential goods rather than books. So, part of the problem, I think part of my, um, you know, why I'm excited that the book is, you know, being la- relaunched in paperback right now, um, and part of my frustration last year was not so much the reaction or the reviews, which were all pretty good, but the fact that people didn't see it because it, you know, I wasn't out in the world doing things to support it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It must have been terribly frustrating. I mean, I, I felt sorry for people because there was that whole thing with early early on in COVID where no one felt quite like they could legitimately complain about their life when people were dying all over the world.
1: Right. And everyone yeah.
0: the endless caveats of I know I've, I know I've got it OK, but I'm still a little bit sad today you know endlessly having to justify feeling down. And I felt really sorry for the authors who who look like they're in a privileged position, but at the end of the day, have spent years working on something that is then being released into the void. So yeah, my sympathies on that one.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, there's nothing you can do. And it happens to a lot of people. I have a friend who published a book. Um, about air travel after 9-11, right? I mean, it's just the way that it goes. And sometimes you have a huge amount of luck when you publish a book and other times you don't. So I think that the key for all of those you know, people out there who write horror, who write anything actually, is to not take the public reaction to your work too seriously and just keep going.
0: Right. Let's delve into the actual meat and the substance of the novel because it's, it's, it's quite a complex beast. No pun intended for those who've read it. <laughs> um, first of all, I'm always fascinated by inspirations. Considering your surname Trossoni, I'm assuming there is some Italian ancestry in your own family.
1: So, in the ancestor, the the village that the main character goes to is in the Aosta Valley, which is on the border with France, and it's right below Mont Blanc. In you know, in reality, my family comes from a small village um, on the Swiss border with Italy. Called Cambodel, you know, right above Lake Como. And I've been to this, you know, region quite a few times and I just fell absolutely in love with it. Um, I found it both gorgeous and terrifying at once, you know, which mountains seem to do to me. (laughs) I don't know, especially, you know, sort of very high and, you know, narrow mountains with passages between them. And I don't know. I'm, I'm one of those people that finds landscape to be essential for horror fiction, right? You need to have the right setting and the right landscape. And so I I took that and I used it in the novel very purposefully. Um what else is I'm trying to think of what else is um personal Oh, I did take a DNA test like my main character and um, I found, I discovered that I wasn't actually Italian. I was like 1.5 or 3.5% Italian, whereas I had grown up believing that I was much more Italian than that. <laughs> so um, that surprise actually sort of inspired or jump started the, the, the premise of the story that someone takes a DNA test and discovers that they have a totally different sort of genetic profile than they thought they had.
0: Right, so I'm assuming that you know, it wasn't revealed that your family have communed with monsters in your past. <laughs> um, but, but there, there is some some relevance there to your own heritage. Then, was any part of it a sense of of paying homage to your Italian roots?
1: A little bit. I mean, I've always wanted to write about about those mountains. Like honestly, my the stories that I heard growing up, my great grandfather used to hike up those mountains and go into Switzerland to sell goat cheese at the market. Um, it really was a part of my heritage, and I did want to write about that. But also, one of my favorite passages in literature, I guess, is the the passage where Frankenstein's monster is in the mountains, and I felt very drawn to the idea of creating something a bit spooky and eerie and, and Gothic, I guess in the Alps and also to reference books that I love. So, you know, Frankenstein is one and, um, you know, the Brontes, as I mentioned earlier, are others with, you know, having a big sort of spooky house in the middle of the mountains. So yeah, there, it was very personal. Um, I guess, like the premise, like the very beginning when I started to think about this, but it quickly evolved into being something that helped me express, I guess, more of a homage to the books I love.
0: You said evolve there, and I keep thinking everything is a pun when we talk about this book. <laughs> I know. Um, so, like, I mean, for, so, first of all, you mentioned the mountains. I on a on a podcast a few weeks ago with Sarah Pierce, I which is also set in the in the Alps. I mentioned that I I lived for a while in Switzerland, and I used to hike every weekend in the in the Alps. And I I went on on a walk to the Italian um, Swiss border once for for a weekend, and that is a particularly eerie part of the mountain range um it is it's very dark and in some ways dismal compared to the you know the the French Alps which are so so glorious it it can feel a little bit frightening in in that part of the world and of course they are you know they're they're at the very bedrock the the Shelleys and all that kind of stuff right right yeah
1: Yeah. I mean that was hugely inspiring um Percy Shelley's Poem about the Italian Alps. Um, so there's a train going by. If you hear that noise, it's
0: fine. It's, it's all local color. It's fine, <laughs>
1: right? Just to let everybody know. Um, but yes, I find I actually went to the Aosta Valley to um, do research for the novel and stayed for a week, basically in a tiny, tiny little town um, where the majority of people who have lived there for you know generations are mountain guides. Um, And I found it very, very eerie, deliciously slow. So actually there was, you know, the structures are all very particular to that um, region. There was a 19th century spa that the Dukes of Savoy used to go to, (laughs) you know, that, and, you know, there's these sort of hidden little wonderful Places that you you just happen upon that you never would have found if you hadn't gone there. So um, that's another thing that I like to do with all my books, including Angelology. Is go to the places that I write about. Um, in the ancestor, it's in the Aosta Valley. It's also in Turin, and I you know I went to these places. I walked the streets. I ate the food. I drank the wine. I, I even stayed in a castle. That sort of immersion was great. And you know I suppose you don't want to live in your horror novel, do you? But <laughs> <laughs> you know um, but if,
0: you, if you're gonna have to there are work- but, right, to do right exactly aren't they? Yeah, yeah so so you mentioned gothic and you know we talked about that and the brontes keep coming up in this conversation and i'm glad because right from the get-go all i could think about with with the ancestor is wuthering heights for the record wuthering heights is my favorite ever british novel me too
1: that's my absolute favorite book of not of any it's like it's the the best for me
0: Excellent. So, reminds me of Wuthering Heights for many reasons, but primarily this complex family tree that you have created to tell this story. Now, at first, when I opened it and I saw that the family tree had been reproduced, I was I was glad because I always think these things are quite hard to keep in your head when you're just reading about them in the story. You need that literal exposition sometimes. Um, but I, I but I did think, you know, like, oh, th- 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 there's a lot of thought gone as this family tree and I thought it was just world building and little did I know because I knew mean nothing about your novel that that family tree would actually become very very pertinent um, right and you story. did you
1: find yourself referencing it a few times I mean even I would be you know I had that drawn out on my desk and when I was writing this I would have to look back <laughs> at the family tree and and just make sure that I was getting it all Right, because what ends up happening is very much, it's a family story, right, in, in a lot of ways. But what ends up happening is that an ancestor um, creates the conditions that, are, that Bert, the, the, the heroine, um, has to live through.
0: Yeah, and I bet you've got loads of stories, haven't you, that haven't made it into the actual novel
1: well, I cut out. So this is this is a little bit of a side set, but I wrote a, a podcast, um, an audio drama called Crypto Z. Um, and the material I used that inspired me to write that audio drama was actually material I cut from this novel. Um, so The Ancestor at one point was much longer, um, probably another 50 to 100 pages longer. And there was a lot more in the book about um, crypto about scientists who were looking into the evolutionary sort of path of human beings, of hominids, um, into, you know, the human history, Neanderthals, Denis Slovens, all of these, the sort of our ancestry. Right. And so all of that, I, my editor cut, cut a lot of it out. Um, I think she thought, and I, she probably is right that it really bogged down the, the, the pacing and, and the drama of my novel. Um, so when I, ha- when I had removed it and sort of looked through it, I thought there's so many great stories here and there's so much I can use. So let's put it into another format. And I wrote 10 audio drama scripts and worked with uh, an amazing um, dr- director named Hadrian Royo. And we put it together and it's now out on Apple Podcasts. Actually, it was in the top 10 um, of apple podcast when it was released for about a month
0: well i'm going to rush and listen to it because one i mean you had me with the title uh, at first i was like surely she's not done a podcast about bitcoin when i saw the crypto <laughs> oh no um, <laughs> oh no no, I am gonna I'm gonna go and listen to it because one I love the subject and two I wanted more stories about this family. I wanted to know about the weird offshoots and the, and the weird uh, background to all this. So I'm delighted to hear that that's actually what it is. Uh, it would be nice to get that addendum. But I read the the family tree stuff and I start the novel and we have a woman who is rapidly relocated to a a castle in the in the Italian Alps and there is you know monstrous landscapes and deep family secrets and this sense of inheritance in in and that has numerous connotations in this novel so i was like okay i know where i am here i'm this is a a piece of gothic revisionism in the vein of something like sylvia moreno garcia's mexican gothic i thought i know where i am so far so good (laughs) nothing game-changing nothing particularly eye-opening i've read this before it's fun, it's well written, I like the characters. that's what I thought, and then it became an entirely different story, and I was like, wow this is this is a ballsy move um were you was that whole story always conceived from the start or did you set out to write a gothic novel and then got sidetracked by this amazing idea?
1: No. So that amazing idea at the end was the novel. You know, that was why I wrote the novel. Um, I was obsessed with that subject matter. I had been reading everything I could find about it, you know, from the, I don't know if you read the nonfiction book, Sapiens, but to, you know, other books about genetics and, cryptozoology and anyway so i i wanted to find a framework or um a way in to that that was very atypical um and i also wanted to combine as i said earlier sort of my personal obsessions like which is gothic fiction and dna and family and all of these other elements i also you know um you probably realize this too but you know cryptozoology while it's You and I both love it, (laughs) and Colin loves it too, Um, or finds it interesting anyway. Um, It's not something that the the mass of readers understand or get or even know what it is. So I couldn't really, I wanted to make a book that was accessible, right? That that had a, a sort of open doorway to every reader, and then slowly brought them into a more and more narrow space one that became more and more claustrophobic and weirder and more unsettling until finally you're in a place where you're like, how the hell did I get here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what's gonna happen now, right? Um, And that for me was the thrill of writing this. Um, The real challenge of it was to get to that end point in an elegant and sort of logical fashion.
0: Well, elegant is the word because you've somehow managed to sort of suture together what should be two very, very almost antithetical stories. Because one seems to be rooted in this archaic, gothic, you know, You I thought it was going to be a supernatural story about ghosts and, and, and ghouls. And and you, you, as I say, you've combined that with a kind of scientific adventure novel. So it's, it's a ballsy move, as I say, and I... It's elegantly done. And I wish more books were willing to be this weird. I, um, I, I get, I'm criticized sometimes for being a little bit fawning on this podcast. And I, I know I am. I say lots of nice things about books, but I genuinely was with this one, really genuinely surprised by it. And that that's rare because I read so many books. It takes quite a lot to get a plot twist or a, a narrative uh, departure past me. Uh, and I was genuinely wrong footed by it which is, can, can only be good.
1: I have to tell you, I'm smiling right now. It really pleases me to hear that because, you know, I think some people uh, love that, right? And I did get a lot of readers, not a lot, I, I you know, a good amount of readers who wanted the sort of Gothic revisionism that you, you're talking about, right? You know, I think the angriest comment I got was that one of the characters, that she didn't get back together with one of, you know, with her boyfriend
0: or her, (laughs) you know,
1: know, and that it wasn't, it it didn't end up being a love story where she, you know, inherited a castle and got married (laughs) and like lived happily ever after. And that was never my intention. When you say that, you know, the scientific adventure novel element of it, I really love something I'm obsessed with. And even in the novel I'm working on now is I love science and like not science fiction and like, let's go to space and see aliens, but like how weird and interesting and just kind of miraculous science is in our daily lives and in our history and in what makes us human um and to actually magnify that in a novel like this and for it to feel weird is satisfying because actually this is kind of real you know it could be a reality <laughs> it's not that far away from possibly happening in my mind anyway
0: so no well so okay so we've tiptoed around the resolution of this pretty well and we can continue to do so but we've got to we've got to confront it a little bit so i'm going to try and delve into the later aspects that scientific aspect of the book without giving the game away so help me out if you think i'm crossing the line i've written down in my notes here a question that begins with the uh, the idea that the ancestor features monsters but then talking to you i'm thinking about that and that the word monster is quite a loaded term. Right. So that's actually quite a good place to start. Do you think The Ancestor features monsters?
1: I don't. That's a shorthand, um, you know, that other people, that uh, reviewers or the other, other um, readers, even my publisher, I think, although I don't think it's on the, the jacket copy, but, um, you know, that have used to describe this when actually this is about us you know this is about um humanity and yeah maybe we're monsters in some ways but i i don't see this as being uh so much about monsters as, as about homo sapiens
0: i thought you would think that to be honest that's why i've rephrased the question it's interesting that you say that the are that the, your, your, the letter was from someone who was annoyed that it wasn't a love story because you say it's about ourselves and and about humans and in some ways it is a love story but it's almost about Bert falling in love with herself and and realizing who she is in in the most literal way possible
1: right I mean Bert as a character so that her name is Alberta and people call her Bert for those people who haven't read the book and you know she's deeply troubled in the beginning of the book because there's just something wrong right she has problems with her body with her identity um with what she wants in life she's tried to have a baby and has had a miscarriage and so she she sort of goes on this journey you know into her ancestry i guess and you're right what she discovers is a sort of new respect for who she is and where she came from and even you know i'm not going to give it away exactly but a pledge to keep it alive right to to find a way to carry it forward um, that she, I don't think she could have done at the beginning of the book,
0: but but that brings with it a cost. And coming back to the idea of what is monstrous and who, if anyone, is monstrous, um, as much as Alberta goes on this journey of you know self-discovery, and 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 we do like her; she is a very uh, a character you can root for. There, there is a strange internal ethics to this novel. It's another thing that I liked that there were no easy answers because it's not really a novel in any great sense with with, with heroes and villains. Um, there are characters across the spectrum who, who murder, who lie. On, on some occasions, children are stolen away from their families. Y- yet you never, not once really, establish a strict code that marks anyone out as good or evil. And I wondered was that born of of empathy as as in when you say you don't think there are monsters in this novel or or was it more of a desire to wrong foot the reader
1: i mean if there were to be a kind of monstrous character i guess it would have been vita right bert when she goes to the castle discovers that in fact there is one old relative still there, still living. She had been told that everybody was dead. Um, And, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but her name is Vita. She's ancient, you know, about 100 years old and has very particular set of circumstances or disabilities, I guess you could say. And, you know, in the beginning when I was writing this, she was going to be more the monstrous character. Um, But as I sort of got to know her, I guess, you know, as I was writing her. And, you know, there was a journal that was written about her childhood and what she went through um, being different, you know, from other people and and living with the sort of conditions that she was born with. I started to really love that character and really like that character a lot. Um, And I didn't see her as monstrous. So I guess to answer your question, it would have been more out of empathy for these characters. And also just the spectrum of human difference, right? I think that we're in a place in time where we want to tribalize ourselves and we want to move off into different groups as humans. But, you know, we're all, there's a spectrum of us and we're all connected. You know, maybe this book explores an extreme spectrum, but it did make me sort of, and I guess Bert too, um, love being part of it all, love being part of that human spectrum.
0: That's a nice way to put it. I'm glad you've mentioned Vita because I I think she's the, for for me, the heart and the most interesting character in the novel. I've got to ask you a very slightly niche question just because I'm I'm interested in the answer. Vita is a character who has spent a, a lot of her life sequestered in this castle because of, the, the nature of her being, a certain degree of deformity, and the shame that that could bring to the family, got to ask: Is any of that inspired by the legend of the monster of Glam's Castle?
1: No, I don't know that legend. Ooh, tell me.
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you very briefly because you'll like this. But Glam's Castle is a is a castle in Scotland um, that was actually the birthplace of our of the Queen Mother, and for i don't know exactly when i think it was 17th century there was supposedly a son of the family who was locked away in a hidden chamber because he was um, almost indescribably monstrous and it, p- people who worked on the castle who said they saw things then disappeared or were shipped to australia back in the day <laughs> and, and there were shadowy figures seen on battlements and walter scott visited um, and noticed that there were more windows on the outside of the buildings and there were doors on the inside mm. to account for them and things like that. It's one of the most fascinating stories because it does actually seem to be true. They, they think they now know who the monster of Glam's was. But it has so many cross-connections with the, the, the story of Vita. Uh, you'll get a kick out of it. I will I will send you a link and I will put a link in the show notes for people who are interested. It's, oh, it's a please. great little creepy... Uh, British legend. I love it.
1: I mean, but also just think of, you know, in the history of, and not so very long ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, aristocratic families were interbreeding with each other, right? They were marrying each other and there was no concept of of genes and what that would um, entail. And of course there were going to be offspring who seemed monstrous right and they didn't know what to do with them so yeah I find that fascinating and, and that plays in a little bit to you know with the ancestor for sure
0: yeah it's, it's a cool story and as you say it sums up a lot of those things that were endemic in, in in the culture of the time that were quite quite monstrous and quite damaging so but it but it weirdly appears to be true it's cool I'll, I'll send you the link thank you Even though you haven't heard of of that legend, your work, not just the Ancestor, but the Angelology series as well, it it does one of my favourite things that people can do with speculative literature, which is to incorporate existing myth and legend into a new story. I think when it's done well, it's one of the most satisfying things you can read because it makes you feel a little bit initiated, you know, if you know which parts exist in in the cultural fabric and which parts don't. It's a a satisfying feeling. When you're doing that, do you structure the novel first and then look for places to kind of inject that existing lore? Or are you led by what's already out there in the cultural ether?
1: So that's such an interesting question because I'm writing a novel now and um, I have a full draft of it um, and I'm now going back and editing and doing research and what I'm finding is that this novel does have elements of lore and legends in it um, but I did not choose particular ones and then structure the novel around it I chose one central storyline which I wrote all the way through and after I finished now that I'm going back and sort of polishing it I guess and and doing more research I'm finding um, elements that plug in for example, one of the myths and legends that I'm exploring in this book is the, is the golem. Right. And Oh, cool. Yeah. And various stories of um, Jewish legends in Prague in, you know, you know, historically, and I'm finding as I start to peel back the layers of Jewish mysticism in the Kabbalah and various secret societies and, thoughts about the golem and creating life from, you know, basically nothing, that there are so many stories that go along with this idea, that I can fold them in after I already have the novel written. Right. There was basically one, the story of the golem, that was the central one, but, and I wrote my novel, and now I'm going back and adding more.
0: And do you find it as satisfying to do that as i find it to read it
1: oh completely you know what i love is when so with angelology especially because um maybe i should send you a copy of that neil um because that one is it's set in the contemporary world it feels very real um it feels like you're reading realist fiction um not horror fiction not a thriller just like realist sort of literary fiction but suddenly all of these legends are coming into play um and i had readers sending me notes saying, I just looked this up. I just looked up this, you know, this Catholic decree that you mentioned, you know, that happened in the 14th century or whatever. And that was real. Did that really happen? And like this line between the research and the myth and the history and not just myth, but, you know, in this case with angelology, with religious history, um, using that line to create a kind of hallucination for readers where they don't know if they're in reality or if they're in a dream. Um, that's very exciting for me. And I love it when readers write to me and, and sort of ask, you know, did this really yeah, happen? Yeah. Or what happened and what didn't
0: I'm, I'm lost. That's excellent. It's a testament to your ability to blend it, isn't it? To create an illusion, I suppose. So I love when writers do that. I mean, have you read um, Max Brooks devolution?
1: I did. I reviewed it in my column.
0: Right, because I think that does it really well. Because that—that's a book that's much like your own, inflected with cryptozoology. It it, it wonderfully blends real Bigfoot anecdotes,
1: right, and,
0: and and Max's own own story. He's coming on the show in May to talk about it. I'm quite excited. But yeah, I think that that's an example that really does it well. Yeah. So and and it, it, obviously it touches the, the crypto stuff that we love. Which, speaking of which. Um, I've got to ask, right, because we've talked about crypt- cryptozoology and your novel is about some of these things. What's your own stance on the let's not call it Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Let's call it the universal wild man myth, <laughs> because you reference the global spread of this in the ancestor. You talk about the Almasti and the Sasquatch and these these other names that people may not be as familiar with. Do you think there's something out there in the, the woods and the wild places of the world?
1: I think it would be kind of crazy if there was nothing, right? I mean, if you look at evolutionary history and, and, you know, 100,000 years ago, there were five different kinds of hominids. They're finding fossils, you know, from five different kinds of hominids that were existing at the same time. It pushes the boundaries of, of belief to think that there could be communities of, of you know, other hominids. I mean, I don't think of Bigfoot as like, a, you know, an ape or... I don't see it on that spectrum. I would see it more as a kind of evolutionary branch of, um, of a hominid. Right. So, yeah, I think that they, it could, they could be out there. I don't disbelieve. I don't a hundred percent believe right. either. I feel like the world is so occupied that we would find them. <laughs> you know? I want to, I want to find them.
0: As I've grown up and I've accepted that there isn't a lot of Ness I've accepted there aren't, there isn't the chupacabra, you know, et cetera, but I am still <laughs> clinging with, right. with white knuckles to my belief in the Sasquatch and the Almasty and, and the Yeti. I don't know why it's, it's the boyhood part of my mind that's never quite gone away.
1: Because it's, you know, it's totally possible, right? Because they're probably as intelligent as we are and they could survive, they could find ways to survive. So yeah. I know, I understand that, that desire to believe.
0: It's got me laughed out of a lot of bars, but I, I stand by it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've mentioned this novel about the golem. Is that your next novel?
1: That's the next novel. Um, at the heart of it is the myth of the golem and porcelain dolls.
0: Oh, that sounds creepy.
1: Right, I'm bringing both of those elements together.
0: Right, I can deduce some things from that, and it's a horrifying <laughs> implication. Um, when when's that going to be published?
1: I don't know yet because I haven't um I haven't sold it yet. I'm writing it first and then I'm going to go out and and see if I find a publisher.
0: Will you come back on the show whenever you do to talk about it?
1: Absolutely. I'll send you a copy as soon as I have a full, you know, as soon as I know when it's coming out, I will get you a copy right away.
0: Amazing. Thank you. One last question just because I'm interested. Anyone who follows you on social media will have seen these really amazing photos you share of spooky old houses. Is, is that part of some project or do you just like Neo-Gothic architecture?
1: So I love Neo-Gothic architecture, but the new novel that I'm writing um, partially is set in an old, spooky old Victorian mansion, upstate New York. Right. So those photographs are often my own research into that space. Um, when I was writing The Ancestor, I did the same with spooky old castles. <laughs> If you go, you know, like if you go back a few, you know, rows back last year or the year before, yeah, um, you'll see gothic castles. So, well,
0: that's what made me think because it it went from turrets to you know spare bedrooms. And right, stuff, right? I, I, there was a, a melding. <laughs> I thought this looks like it, it is a research project. Yeah, there's some great images. They're they're amazing. They properly really inspire me. I always want to live in them though.
1: Um, I I love Instagram and so you know for someone who's always looking at text like just having image is so such a relief and such a pleasure
0: I have tried with Instagram in the six months I've been online I've got like nearly a thousand followers on Twitter it's going well Instagram I just cannot get my head around I just can't can't work it can't do it
1: you know yeah it can be trying I think you have to find one thing that you love on that to do like you know I do with my with those houses and then it just becomes fun right I'm not constantly thinking oh what should I post what should I photograph just I have something. That's it. I'm
0: always thinking, like, oh, another picture of my dog with a book. No, <laughs> um, yeah.
1: yeah, those those do really well. Animals, animals and book stags.
0: Indeed. Um, right. To finish you up, I just have four questions that I ask each guest. We're coming to the end soon of this particular set of questions. I'm going to replace it with with four others. So you're one of the last people to answer this. But simply, what was your gateway to horror?
1: So, VC Andrews and Stephen King.
0: V.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic, right?
1: Yes. When I was about okay. eight years old, I came across a copy of that. And it so terrified me <laughs> and turned my head around um, that I was hooked forever. And then Stephen King, because as I grew older, I was reading a lot of Stephen King.
0: Cool. Do you have a favorite?
1: You know, I like his older. I like Carrie and Firestarter. I like the 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 sort of, and The Shining, of course. Um, I like his novels that sort of follow one female character, although The Shining isn't like that, but, you know, Carrie or Firestarter.
0: Okay, cool. V.C. Andrews is the book that made incest palatable for a short while. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you could recommend a novel for my listeners, please don't recommend Flowers in the Attic. Yeah, no, I I won't. I won't. What would it be? And why? You
1: know, that it changes my, you know, the novel I would recommend always changes. But right now I would recommend a sort of older novel called The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. It seems to have fallen out of fashion, but it was kind of a big novel a while ago. Um, And I'm I'm really into archival horror right now. Um, You know, and that's what that is. It's about someone who is tracking down Dracula basically through archival material and legends
0: it it blends two of my great loves which is metafiction and as you say archival horror but i didn't know the phrase archival horror i've said for years that my favorite part of any horror film is the, is the scene the library montage me too. where they are <laughs> they're watching the old microfiche and they realize it's happened before that's right. my favorite bit
1: me too <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that it. book does that in a very modern meta way. So it has. It is weird that it's fallen from the sort of kind of public consciousness so much because it was massive for a while. It was one of those books that had like a a six figure fee when it got when it was bought, and it was right. massive. And then yeah, it's just gone away.
1: Right, and there was supposed to be a film. You know, I don't think yeah. there was ever a film. I don't understand why, because I think it would make a great film. It's it's a very long. It's something like. It's like 700, 700 or 800 pages right it's yeah. long maybe that has something to do with it our attention span but um so i would recommend people go back and take a look at that
0: as would i listeners if you're getting a holiday this year i mean chances are thin but if you're going to cornwall or somewhere take the historian by elizabeth Costova. you'll enjoy it if you had a single piece of advice for a wannabe fledgling newbie writer basically me what would it be
1: so I have on my Twitter account. If you don't follow me, come and follow me, and it will be great to meet you. Um, I'm at Danny Tresoni. I have a, a quote from Kafka that essentially I don't know it exactly. It says to follow your obsessions relentlessly. Right? Don't change what you love. Don't water it down. Don't try to make it commercial. Don't try to copy another writer's um, you know sensibility or aesthetics. And really, that's what my biggest piece of advice would be is find that thing that really excites you about what you're writing and just go there and, and don't be afraid to um, make it weird and make it yours.
0: Thank you very much. I always look for the slogan in the answer and I think make it weird is uh, <laughs> a perfectly, perfectly pithy weird. way to summarize that. Yeah. Lastly, my favorite question, what truly scares you?
1: dementia
0: wow okay
1: like losing my my intellectual grip on the world
0: i can see that yeah it's yeah i, I always ask this question last in an interview and it always leaves me in a quite awkward place where i have got to go okay dementia <laughs> okay. thank you danielle i'll speak to you again at some point no <laughs> um yeah i i can i can appreciate that we have dementia in my family uh, it's an awful, vicious, stealing thing. And as someone who makes my living through essentially thinking and writing, right. yeah, it, it horrifies me too.
1: Me too. Like the idea of losing that thing that I've built my entire identity around, which is my, you know, ability to mentally engage with the, with the universe. Like that's very scary.
0: Reading supposedly keeps the old brain matter healthy. So there you go. I've managed to find a positive segue to the end of the episode. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you. We want to end this on a positive note.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we do indeed. And as I say, at the time this episode goes live, the book is out in paperback. If you're averse to hardbacks, like like to be honest, I am, go and buy a copy of this. It's It's a very quick read, but a very complex read at the same time. And I think everyone will will either enjoy it or have a lot to say about it. And, and if you do, don't send Danny hate mail, asking why there's not <laughs> a love story in it. It's not about that. Sit on your hands. Um, But yeah, Daniel Trussoni, all the best with the, the paperback release, all the best with the new book. And thank you for talking scared.
1: Yeah, thank you, Neil. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs>
0: Oh, what a great conversation that was. Danny is a really thoughtful guest who, despite what she might say, does definitely have her thumb planted firmly on the pulse of the genre. If you haven't yet checked out her column in the New York Times, then I, I recommend you do. It's a great resource for those interested in contemporary horror, which presumably is all of you listening. Also, have a look at her Instagram. The, um, the photos of castles and, and gothic houses, they, they really do get the imagination whirring. And whilst you're looking her up, be aware that Danny is giving away 25 copies of The Ancestor to celebrate the paperback release. You can find details on her website, Danieltrassoni.com, or on her social channels. Go and try and get a copy. Failing that, I'd buy one. It's a real one-off, which is something we can't say all that often. How are we feeling about my constant references to myths and legends and odd arcana that i like to throw in there um if my reference to the monster of glam's castle has tantalized you and how could it not then i've put some links in the show notes it's a really fascinating story and and it reads like a too good to be true gothic novel but it seems alarmingly to actually have some basis in truth to fully pull you in Here's a quick quote from the 13th Earl of Strathmore, um, who in some way was linked to the castle. Um, And he said of the mystery that, quote, if you could even guess at the nature of this castle's secret, you would get then on your knees and thank God it's not yours, end quote. I mean, come on, how amazing is that? I just want to visit. I want to go and see the, the, the locked room, the mysterious room. Love stuff like that. I, I hope you're enjoying my little indulgences, because, I mean, each week, I basically crowbar a little bit of spooky trivia into each conversation. I listen back sometimes, and, and I cringe a bit. I mean, it was Witch Windows and the Bennington Triangle with Jennifer McMahon, it was the video nasty debate with Clay McLeod Chapman, a- and now it's this. But then again, I'm the guy who put my doctoral thesis out on the table for my soon-to-be wife to see on our second date, so... Yeah, so what do I expect? I'm a (laughs) show-off. Speaking of my thoughts, though, I wonder what you think about my observation on the yearly release schedule. You may have noticed that I've had predominantly women writers on the show since the new year, and you'll see that flip-reverse a little in the coming months. It really does seem to me that the publication calendar is a game of two halves, with men dominating the summer and women at the either end of the year. I mean, there are some obvious like, exceptions, but more and more it feels like the, quote, big-name horror releases are becoming summer-centric, and that male authors are still dominating that category. I mean, it's, it's odd, really, considering how many fantastic women I've had on this show in just the last two or three months. But, but Danny is right. Almost all of them are caveated in some way, recategorised as gothic, thriller, dark fantasy, romance... Rarely, out and out, straight down the line, horror. The only one I can think of, really, was um, Katrina Ward, whose novel was pushed as horror. But even now I'm seeing things about, you know, psychological thriller, noir, stuff like that. I just I just don't know why publishers and marketers and reviewers feel the need to, to categorise and challenge horror books by women as, as, as not just horror. At the same time... Male authors are described outright as horror novelists, without challenge, when when their books are just as varied in tone and extremity. It's a serious double standard, and I'm I'm not quite sure what's behind it. I mean, surely we aren't all uncomfortable with saying a woman can write horror, surely. I mean, I'd be interested in what you think. I mean, I'm always trying to get debate going, trying to get conversation going in the community. Let me know what you think about that and all manner of things. Get in touch. As always, I'm delighted to hear from any and all listeners. You can find me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me at talkingscaredpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Despite what I said, I am trying my best with Instagram and I've put up some more content on there, including the ridiculous change in weather that has plunged me back into the ice age since I recorded this interview. Spring has seriously unsprung. Most of all, get in touch. Hearing from you guys is at least half of the joy I get from this show. And I'm not going to bang on about reviews. As usual, they are vital. If you can leave on an Apple podcast, please do. Next week, I'll be back with another conversation that touches upon cryptozoology. I'd like to claim I planned it that way, but it's just a happy accident and a, a very different book. But until then, start learning a new language, maybe Italian. Draw up a decent will, and be kind to your old relatives, even the hairy ones. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.